those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Hello, comrades. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi and Marine and Ash. <laughs> <laughs> and Ash, yes, special guests on the show today. So welcome, Ash. Ash, if you don't know, if you are just not part of the leftist scene at all and you do not know, Ash is a co-host of the Horror Vanguard podcast, which is absolutely amazing. Love this podcast. Uh, and the other co-host is the Lit Crit Guy, John. Amazing stuff. Uh, we will put links to their podcast and their social media in the description box so that everyone can check them out and yeah just welcome ash to the show thank you thank you great introduction <laughs> well maxi never never goes into a podcast without a good introduction of our guests never <laughs> never this, this wasn't spliced back in <laughs> no. post-production at all <laughs> not at all we're going to be talking about death positivity or the lack thereof in our society and how that relates to the hilariously wild preppers movement, which we've all just been very tickled by researching it for this episode, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, my mind's blown. Yeah. It is interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize the extent of it at all. Yeah. It's, uh, you, you can just dig deeper and deeper and deeper, and it just, whew. Yes, mine's blown. Uh, but first, before we jump into that, I'm going to shout out the patrons. And I'm going to also shout out the fact that we now have these amazing stickers and pins for you all, which are very exciting. So far, they've just been available for patrons, but uh, they're going to be available soon to purchase on our website as well. They were designed by Menika Repka of Noosh Design Co., who is just an amazing intersectional vegan activist. Just absolutely wonderful. Shout out, Menika. Thank you so much for these designs. One of them says, animals are our comrades. And it's awesome. And one of them says, animals want capitalism to end. And the designs are just, <laughs> they're so good. So right now they're available for patrons. So at the $5 tier, you get free stickers. And at the $10 tier, you get stickers and pins. So if you are a patron and you have not yet sent me your mailing address, uh, if you're at those tiers, please do so. And I will send you your stickers and pins. And if you would like them, consider signing up at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard or uh, in the next few weeks I'm, I'm gonna have them up on the website for sale as well so shout out to john mertz and marika who generously increased their pledges in order to reach the sticker tier which is great thank you so much and shout out also to james monette and afra who are new patrons and so yes once again you can support us at patreon.com or you can make a one-time donation via paypal on our website veganvanguardpodcast.com or share our episodes with friends and family and give us ratings and reviews on itunes to increase our reach yay wow you were so efficient maxi <laughs> It, it didn't even give me time to react and say how much I love the stickers and how much I'm fangirling that we have them just on our website and for our patrons. Yes. They're so, Medica did such a phenomenal job. They're, I mean, I don't want to toot our own horns here, but they are some of the nicest stickers I have ever seen in my life. I agree. They are so cute too. I mean, they're radical, but also oh, cute. The, the monkey. I know. So cute. Oh my God. So, so cute. <sighs> 
Yeah. So yeah, just absolutely thrilled about that. So excellent. Yeah. I can't wait to get mine in the mail. Yes. I feel like I want them all over my laptop. Yes. And all over my tote bags. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fun story. Uh, the place where I got the, the pins made is a local place in Toronto. And the guy who runs it is a comrade, apparently, because I sent him the designs and he was like, I love these designs. Like, oh, hell yeah. I'm into animal liberation, too, and whatever. And he's just like, man, sign me up on your mailing list and let me know if you're doing any actions or anything. And I'm just like, yes. <laughs> so crazy. Cool. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So yeah, definitely uh, check those out if you haven't seen them and uh, sign up if you'd like to get some. So again, before we jump into the main topic, I'm going to read some positive, hopeful headlines for the future from a listener who has sent these in. So thank you too mu- so much to Rasmus. And uh, yeah, Marina and Ash will react. <laughs> okay at the 100th anniversary after the start of the great world revolution earth's climate has recovered to about the same state as before the 21st century scientists say wow that sure is a hopeful headline yeah it is a hopeful headline that would be amazing i'm into it love it Number two, as potatoes will be detached, as potatoes will be detached from all currency at the end of the month, prominent economists from around the globe have put together a list of four ways in which the transition to a post-scarcity moneyless society could occur. What? (laughs) Wait, so is the idea... I'm sorry, I always, I know that I always make you explain these headlines to me and I don't give a spontaneous reaction, but is the idea that potatoes become free because we're in an apocalypse and then that triggers a reaction by economists who realize that money is pointless? So I'm not sure exactly how I'm reading this. When I heard, when I read as potatoes will be detached from all currency, I kind of thought about you know, kind of the gold standard and then gold was detached from currency. So maybe now, (laughs) you know, maybe now our currency is uh, attached to potatoes, but it's being detached. The potato standard. Yeah, the potato standard. And now that's, you know, falling apart. So these economists from around the globe are saying, well, here's some ways that we can transition to a moneyless post-scarcity society. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. So the potatoes gives rise to the idea that (laughs) just food and stuff should not be monetized. Yeah, well, it gives rise to the idea that, like, nothing should be monetized and we shouldn't have a currency that's attached to anything that's, um, you know, arbitrary. Because gold, the gold standard was just arbitrary as well, right? I never thought about that as, like, a possible place for inspiration. Mm -hmm. That is a good point to bring up when people are like, well, we can't just detach money from what it means. Right, it it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because it doesn't even mean gold. No, it means nothing. Anymore. It means potentially potatoes, but also nothing. Right? Potentially potatoes. <laughs> it's just not tied to anything. Okay, number three. Um, MVFT, Memorial for the Victims of the Fur Trade, is founded one year after the last few fur farms were shut down, located in the last big fur farms complex in Russia. Hell yeah. I love this. Love it. Fuck fur. Yep. Yeah, and it reminds me. It reminds me of a lot of the discourse that's around the like um, the Confederate monuments here in the states, you know. And like, there's there's a lot of commentary where like, what? How different would our world be if instead of like monuments to Confederate the leaders of the Confederacy, we had monuments to like, you know, the the former slaves who managed to escape and and the mm-hmm. people who were victimized by that system. 
Wow, that would be amazing. Think of what that would do for like the American worldview, right? Right. <laughs> if we were all You're actually, telling I, me. I, if we were all actually, I mean, we, but we're all Americans, aren't we? But um, yeah, if we were all identifying with you know the freedom fighters versus the colonizers, wow, mm-hmm. I think that would be huge. Right. Yeah. Less less statues to queens and more statues to like you know the the people who were victimized by colonization and empire. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Next headline. In their latest critically acclaimed book, How the Patriarchy Was Smashed, gender scientist Bao Suen discusses the feminist advancements made over the century and claims through her analyses of contemporary conditions that patriarchal structures no longer exist in society. Wow. Dope. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine. People say, you know, you can always, you can imagine the end of the world before the end of capitalism. I can imagine the end of the world and I can imagine the end of capitalism before the end of patriarchy. Yeah. Mm. Not kidding. Yeah. Imagine seeing a book like How the Patriarchy Was Smashed. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I really like that. I love the imagination of that moment too, because it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of like that, that brief transitory moment where people are like, wait, is this thing gone? And you've mm-hmm. got, like, the scholars who are like, wait, hang on, I have to double check this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who are weighing in, like, it's a legitimate debate to have at that point, mm-hmm. whether or not all the vestiges of it are gone or not. Right. And then, upon closer inspection, it has, in fact, been smashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great one. Uh, next one is, after months of nationwide discussion and debate, Sweden bans production and trading of meat and all animal products other than manure with the passing of their new Animal Rights Act, completing in time the environmental goal of agricultural self-sufficiency without animal production by 2050. Wow. This is, this is the most, like, Nordy social democrat headline I've heard. This is great. <laughs> Totes. And 2050, I mean, that's not very far off. No, that's not very far off. Okay, and then there's one last one, which is a funny one. Exclusive news, first diplomatic encounter with alien civilization proves Posada's theory right. (laughs) 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 So for context, (laughs) they've included the context here. And I, I, you know, maybe not everyone knows what this theory is. So for context. Okay. I, I was going to say I don't know what it is, but then I was afraid you'd get mad because <laughs> I never know what these headlines mean, apparently. Okay, well, for context, Posadas was a weird Argentinian Trotskyist that, according to communist memes, at least, theorized that communism would be the last stage of all societies in history and therefore meaning alien galactic civilizations would all be communist and classless. And I believe there's also... is I. <laughs> I'm not really up on this theory, but I believe there's also a theory that, um, you know, uh, aliens are going to come and communicate with us through dolphins somehow and Mm. uh, basically help us to realize galactic space communism. I'm down with that. Wait, how would the (laughs) dolphins... I don't know why the dolphins are involved. <laughs> Maxie, how do the dolphins talk to the aliens? People need to know. Well, and how would the dolphins talk to us as well? Uh, I don't know. They work out some kind of like echolocation form of communication. 
Mm. I might be wrong about this. Maybe somebody's like <laughs> pulling my leg about the dolphins, but yeah. I, I, really, I really... Maybe you read this in a sci-fi book. <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> but I feel like somehow somehow they're involved. But uh, yeah, so that's a pretty good one too. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, Okay. well, thank you, Rasmus, for those headlines and for all of our other listeners. If you're interested in sending in some hopeful headlines for the future, please send that into any of our social media platforms or email it to us at veganvanguardpodcast at gmail.com. So diving into our topic for today, we are all so excited to talk about this death positivity or lack thereof and the preppers movement so uh i think we're going to start with just talking about death positivity and what it is what the tenets of it are and uh, the importance that it has for our society so ash would you care to explain for us what is death positivity and maybe give us a bit of uh, history on the movement Yeah, so death positivity is kind of broadly a social movement that is looking to reevaluate and change how we broadly and culturally view death, right? We're very, as they would suggest, death negative, right? We we distance ourselves from death. We try to lock death away. and, And that has a lot of negative consequences that kind of reverberate through society, right? Like one of the more prescient ones perhaps for this show is that like, rather than trying to find uh, natural ways to to deal with death and like what to do with human bodies after they're no longer living we like inject them full of lots of like carcinogenic preservative chemicals and then bury them in the ground which just seems a little counterintuitive <laughs> mm-hmm. but um yeah it's, it's looking to kind of like reevaluate our negative attitudes towards death uh it kind of grows out of two two things that wind up intersecting so there's um a woman named Caitlin Doherty, and she's a mortician and like an outspoken feminist and kind of like the uh, like perhaps leader or figurehead of the death positive movement. And, and like the, the terminology, she coins it in a tweet in 2013 that, that reads, why are there a zillion websites referencing to being sex positive and nothing for being death mm. positive? Damn. Right, so spitting that fire. But it also it com- it comes out of a book. Um, I think he's an anthropologist uh, named Ernest Becker from 1973 called "The Denial of Death," mm. and the book was kind of just a a, a look at like you know, quote unquote Western civilization's negative attitudes towards death and kind of how those have broader implications throughout society. Mm-hmm. And one of the conclusions that he kind of comes to that might be interesting for the coming discussion about preppers <laughs> is that that he kind of comes to this conclusion that as we moved through the Enlightenment and we kind of left a lot of religious and spiritual ideas behind, there was a void where we no longer had an adequate framework to understand death and what death does and our relationship to it. And now we have this kind of like rush of people falling into that, trying to fill that void, coming up with like different, like wacky new ways to be immortal and and outlast (laughs) any kind of like biological or ecological death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So, I mean, Ash told me about this, I think it's also a book, the order of the good death, which I have not yet read, but I explored the website. And Mm -hmm. so uh, there's, eight kind of tenets here or there's eight uh intentions i guess that they encourage people to uh adopt if they're thinking about becoming more death positive so is it is it a secular movement 
I think so. Okay. It's not tied to any... I don't think it's tied to any one religion. No. No, I, th- I think it's open-ended about how people approach it religiously, but I, I don't think they're... Or at least I haven't heard of, like, an internally supported religion within the death positivity movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first heard about death positivity, uh, I thought a lot about Buddhist philosophy, which I'll get into a little bit later, but I think... Yeah, I think different religions could obviously mesh with this movement as well, but I think it's kind of uh, just in general, people can identify with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some of these intentions, they're, you know, one, I believe that by hiding death and dying behind closed doors, we do more harm than good to our society. I believe the culture of silence around death should be broken through discussion, gatherings, art, innovation, and scholarship. I believe that talking about and engaging with my inevitable death is not morbid, but displays a natural curiosity about the human condition. I believe that the dead body is not dangerous and that everyone should be empowered, should they wish to be, to be involved in care for their own dead. I believe that the laws that govern death, dying, and end-of-life care should ensure that a person's wishes are honored, regardless of sexual, gender, racial, or religious identity. I believe that my death should be handled in a way that does not do great harm to the environment. Mm. I believe that my family and friends should know my end-of-life wishes and that I should have the necessary paperwork to back up those wishes. I believe that my open, honest advocacy around death can make a difference and can change culture. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I I think that this is obviously really important and useful to our society in a lot of ways. And people might think, you know, oh, why? You know, who who cares? It's just death. Like, why do we have to embrace death? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, why? Why? How is embracing death going to improve our society? But I think there's there's so many ways that it can. And I wanted to just bring up a few things that I thought of in relation to Buddhist ideology. And so for in Buddhist philosophy, you know, the fear of death is is a really important idea because it's, you know, theorized that the fear of death is kind of actually behind a lot of the anxieties that we have and also um, behind a lot of the, the grasping and attachment that we have that leads us to do things that are damaging or not productive or leads us to be greedy or leads us to try and, you know, heap up wealth and things like that in order to avoid death, which I think is very, very relevant to the preppers and the particularly like the billionaire bunker preppers movement. But, you know, one of the major tenets of Buddhism is this idea of impermanence, that everything is is impermanent and everything is in a constant state of change. And that one of the main reasons why people suffer so much in their life is because they don't actually, they don't actually understand impermanence. um, And they grasp like they're, they're so full of grasping and attachment to these things that will inevitably change. And, you know, a lot of those things are kind of just, uh, you know, these transitory states of happiness. Like if you think about a romantic relationship or even like getting high on drugs or whatever, you know, like (laughs) things that make you happy in the moment. um, But like ultimately won't, won't give you lasting happiness. Um, You know, we, we attach ourselves or we grasp at these things that are fleeting. And then, you know, after a while, you just need more and more of whatever it is that you're grasping after to even feel like a modicum of happiness. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, you know, people that we love, you know, we we grasp and we attach ourselves so much to them. And of course, we're going to do that. We love them. 
but not understanding that, you know, impermanence is the only real constant. Like, it also kind of uh, relates to Octavia Butler's kind of God is change idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, if we don't learn to actually let go and, yeah, basically just let go of our attachments, then we will suffer, right? And there's this idea that our fear of death, uh, according to Sogyal Rinpoche, is the fear of life or the fear of actually facing ourselves. And he talks about death using this analogy of being on a train, kind of uh, a train platform waiting for a train. And we know that the train is coming, but we don't know exactly when it's coming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we have all this anxiety because our bags aren't packed. We're not prepared. We don't actually prepare ourselves for death or even really think a great deal about our death or accept our death. And then we also don't live thoughtfully because we also think that we're going to live forever, right? Like, yeah, we, we know we're going to die someday, but we just prefer not to absorb that thought and pretend that we actually just have this unlimited lease on life. Right. So we end up becoming lazy in how we live our lives. And in the West, uh, he says that this laziness is actually an active one. So we actually actively do everything and anything that we can to avoid ourselves. We fill our lives with all these activities and um, you know, all these things and all these people, and there's not really a chance for the truth of ourselves to be revealed or for us to really face ourselves. And then we just live in this abiding anxiety because we've not faced our death. And that is kind of our ultimate fear. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. learning to live in, in the immediacy of death helps us to sort out our priorities and to realize what's truly important in life. And that, you know, if everything's changing, like, it drives us to ask like what is really true and is there anything behind the appearances is there anything that's you know boundless and infinitely spacious kind of kind of this idea of like the universal consciousness that is kind of behind life in the universe kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and then when you kind of look at that and kind of meditate on that um and practice letting go then you know, a lot of this other stuff, a lot of the fear kind of fades away, right? Like everything, our desires and stuff, then the things that we're grasping for, or the things that we're trying to avoid kind of dissolve and fade away. And then, uh, yeah, we're able to like live more fully in the present and, and get to know the truth of ourselves and all this stuff. So, it, I mean, it kind of gets a little bit, I can't explain this all right now, but I think that, it, I mean, it is really relevant and it is, I think it is a good way to conceptualize how people end up doing things because they haven't actually faced their own impermanence Mm -hmm. and they end up doing very silly things, which we'll get into. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I also think that our society, our capitalist culture pulls us away from getting in touch with the reality that we have inherent worth just by like that. We're just allowed, we're allowed to be here and we're worthy without having to do things like it's such a do 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 culture where you know you're not really in touch with like being or just Mm -hmm. right like being still and just like being whole Mm -hmm. doesn't require you to buy new things or to get new awards or to make a certain amount of money it just would require you know you to I guess get in get in touch with who you are and be a kind person and just Yeah, this idea that you don't have to do anything to be worthy is pretty radical and is something Mm -hmm. that I think um, is in capitalism's best interest for for us not to realize. And death 
is so much more terrifying when you feel like you have to do all of these things to like make your life worth something or Mm -hmm. to become someone. Whereas I think there's a natural, a more natural acceptance of death just when you realize that by being here, you've already fulfilled by being here and being a good person, you've already fulfilled what you need to do in Mm -hmm. in this life, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah, I, I'm kind of making a video right now about kind of this idea of post-capitalism and, and environmentalism and things like that. And in, in it, I talk about the fact that, you know, we always we have this preoccupation about, you know, what is the meaning of life like for humans and whatnot? Mm-hmm. But you would never you never ask, like, what is the meaning of life for a turtle or a coyote or anything like that? Right. Mm-hmm. Like the meaning of their life is just to exist and be part of the ecosystem and fulfill their function of being part of that ecosystem. And that's actually us, too. Like we are just animals and we have co-evolved with other species and the environments around us to be part of that ecosystem. But we kind of just forget about all of that. And then, yeah. you know, everything that we do, like our jobs, our laws, our money, our everything is just things that we've built up on top of that, that don't really have anything to do with the purpose of our lives, but we're just doing it. And then we, we kind of forget that we're just animals. Yeah, <laughs> and then we're such like, a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we just try and like heap up all this stuff and try and prove ourselves in all these ways that are just not necessary for us to do and then again yeah we just we end up with this deep attachment to what we what what we're attached to in this life which is like wealth and like fun and this these transitory states of happiness that you know people who are more wealthy even people who aren't wealthy actually are still i think part of the preppers kind of mentality and movement but like you know a lot of the richer people of course are just doing all these ridiculous things to hold on to their their life because they just they obviously are, are so distanced from like being an animal <laughs> on the earth, right? <laughs> right. And and it's also losing all connection, not realizing your life is about connection and the meaning of your – like your life loses meaning if there's no love, if there's no connection, if there's no outside world. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of an episode of Surviving the End of the World by Autumn and Adrian brown that we always bring up on the show and they had a podcast episode called um how do we prepare for a climate apocalypse and this already mexi did a really great job of explaining this point but i just really loved the way that autumn brown said it and she talks about her zen meditation practice that has helped her get in right relationship with death And she practices the Soto Zen tradition, which teaches four noble truths. And I think that the first, one of the truths, but I think it might be the first one is the truth of suffering. Mm -hmm. And it explains that everyone we know and love will eventually suffer and die. And that she has found empowerment and meaning and just awakening to that reality that everyone I know is either dead or going to die and my life and the life of my children and the life of the people that I love most in the world is going to end. And because that is true, regardless of our climate reality, regardless of these Mm -hmm. various crises that are impending, she finds a certain, you know, she says like, I certainly don't want to downplay those crises, but regardless of whether or not that is true and like regardless of when that actually arises, like when that manifests to kill me and us, uh, still the like death is an inescapable universal truth. And it's important for us to orient to the truth of death 
right now. And Mm -hmm. she also explains that that creates space for us to figure out how, like what our agency is within that very limited and transitory time phase that we have on earth. Or, you know, she says that like our soul is, you know, has a material embodiment on earth because she's very spiritual. But yeah, I, I really liked that. Yeah. I think, um, I, th- I think all of this connects in to to the fact that like on on a systemic level, the culture that we live in actively disincentivizes us from trying to find these deeper meanings and actually mm-hmm. confronting the nature of death, right? Because that is uh, that would be a destabilizing force to capital, right? Because if you mm-hmm. found and, and through whatever means, right? Like if it's through Buddhism or just a relationship with nature more broadly, or or like Christianity or whatever. But if you had like a peaceful and an accepted relationship to your own death that that kind of obliterates the strain that comes with like okay well like i have to i have to leave a billion dollars for my kids i have to i have to build all these monuments i have to like buy all this stuff i have to outdo my neighbors i have to get this car like all of that weight that's constantly building your own little empire around you, like this kind of like mm-hmm. this like king's burial that like capitalism wants us to build for ourselves is kind of defeated by the very nature of being death positive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so true. And and as Maureen, you were saying, I think it definitely relates to, you know, our current moment and in like eco grief and eco anxiety that you talked about last week on the show. And obviously, yeah, not to downplay that at all. But part of your discussion, you were talking about uh, the fact that, you know, both you and Zavi were uh, anxious about the idea of having kids. And even if we weren't living in the world that we're living in now, then you absolutely would want them. But because mm-hmm. knowing the future of the climate apocalypse, you know, I think everyone our age is, is uh, you know, anxious about that. And I'm in the same boat. You know, if I if we weren't living in the climate apocalypse, I would be absolutely <laughs> like 100% I want to have a kid and that would be so great. And I'm actually like, you know, of an age that I would probably be having it right now you know what I mean but I have also (laughs) having it right now (laughs) having it now I'd probably be birthing it on the show right now but um but is it an it (laughs) it's an it it's an it um it is a thing (laughs) I'd be I'd be doing the damn thing right I'd be doing the thing birthing the thing now but yeah I I felt I feel the same way my whole life I've been like oh I don't want them but then um uh, one of my friends who I want to shout out who has an amazing channel called Circle A Tattoo. Great channel on YouTube. I'll link it below. Go check it out. But um, they posted about the fact that they actually want to have kids and that, you know, although we are living in this climate apocalypse and everyone's grieving and, you know, they are very tapped into, uh, you know, eco grief and 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 all of that, that, like there is still value in having a child, you know, like w- no one knows when you're going to die ever mm-hmm. when you are born, mm-hmm. right? And we still don't quite know when we're exactly going to die or when the climate apocalypse is going to hit. And and just this idea that life still has value, even if you mm-hmm. don't know when you're going to die, or even if you have a short time to live, like someone who's born with um, some kind of a, an illness, then they can't, they don't live that long, right? Like their mm-hmm. their life still has value and that we shouldn't we shouldn't think of it as, oh, we need to feel guilty about bringing life into the world and and whatnot. And I thought that was really true because, um, you know, something sad happened um, in Toronto, well, that I heard about that, you know, this kid was biking with his grandpa and he like 
straight out into the road and was hit and killed right and that was a child right and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing just happens and you know obviously we're heading into a time that is very dangerous ecologically but um i think that it's so true that if we just orient to the fact that like regardless of how it happens we are going to die and it's probably not like we're probably not just gonna like peacefully fall asleep like we there might be pain in the way that we die right like just accepting that at just the most basic level, I think can also help a little bit with like the eco anxiety and stuff and just kind of accepting where we are and appreciating where we are, regardless of what's coming, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I think for me, one of the things that I've been kind of finding some like really bizarre, like a spooky piece in is the fact that it's kind of always been that way to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. That like, mm-hmm. I, I absolutely respect the comment that like, like thing, things are becoming more dangerous. And as the climate shifts and becomes less 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 what we're used to um things are going to become more dangerous as you were saying but like death is an incredibly capricious force right the Mm -hmm. idea that like you can live in a way that would significantly mitigate the odds of your death is kind of like that's kind of like a false consciousness capital capitalism kind of thing like the idea that like okay like i'm gonna i'm gonna eat this prescribed list of things i'm gonna work out this type of workout for x hours a day and like i'll have us i'll buy the new stand-up desk i'll buy yeah. i'll buy the ergonomic shoes like i'm gonna do every i buy all the things yeah. to keep me alive <laughs> and then like but but at the end of the day like you know for the entire history of humanity like we, we are all one falling rock away from from mm-hmm. meeting our maker as it were or like you know one bad trip down a hill or a flight of stairs or like you know who knows who's got the like sleeper illness that went unchecked until it was too late mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. like like that's grim and that's but it's also kind of peaceful in a way for me because there is no the the the, the capricious nature of this and the lack of certainty kind of means that like we've kind of always been living to an extent under really extreme random conditions Mm-hmm. And like I find I find a lot of value in that. Yeah, it's it's liberating in a way because then it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well now I can, you know, obviously I still want to take care of myself. I want to oh, have yeah. you know, mobility. I want to be good to my body and stuff, but at the same time, yeah, it's just it's liberating in a way to be like, well now I can just really enjoy where I am right now. Now I can just really right. actually yeah. be in the present and enjoy it right yeah there, mm-hmm. there's like a there's a gulf between like taking care of yourself and like respecting that our bodies change with age and that we need to be ready for that yes and like you know having like a spreadsheet that counts how many cups of coffee you drink a week because mm-hmm. like you're constantly reading like msnbc articles about like how much caffeine is secretly killing you or whatever right mm-hmm. Or those articles where it's like, actually, if you drink four cups a day, that's the optimal amount of coffee to drink. Yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah, like the endless, like, you know, how many, how many is red wine killing you or making you immortal? Find out right. tonight at seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so true. Yeah, I think what I'm afraid of is like physical suffering. Mm. Because I think like the thought that death would sweep me up just from one minute to the other without me being without me being aware of it like something about well I don't want to be insensitive if anyone listening has had like a close person pass away you know with a through a plane crash uh because obviously like for the people who stay on earth and alive it's so incredibly painful but like when I'm 
when I'm on a plane, for example, <laughs> I don't really, I mean, it's like the, the two minutes before that happens are terrifying. I don't like, you know, I'm scared of those two minutes, but the actual like dying, if it's painless and quick, doesn't actually scare me mm-hmm. very much. Even though I like being alive mm-hmm. and don't want to die. So, mm-hmm. the th- you know, like that bums me out, the thought that that might end. Mm-hmm. But but I don't know. I still haven't gotten over my fear of suffering. I don't know if that's a fear I'll ever get over. But Yeah, I mean, I think nobody wants to physically suffer. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think about having, you know, a terrible, painful, terrifying death and like how, yeah, that would be obviously just be excruciating. But then I guess like kind of at the moment of actual death, like death is then just like a release, right? And then like, I guess when I was young, I used to think about death a lot. And that's why I really ended up resonating with a lot of Buddhist philosophy. Because when I found it, I was like, oh, this is what I always thought about when I was a kid. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I thought about it a lot. And um I, I did feel that it was kind of liberatory, even if even if you do end up dying and like a, it's suffering and having kind of a, a bad death, just the fact that we are all going to die does is kind of liberating in, in a sense, because I, I don't know, like, depending on what you believe, I guess I always kind of just believe that I wouldn't like the consciousness that I have now wouldn't be maintained in the same way after my death so I wouldn't even remember that I suffered at my death Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. like once it's over then it's like well I have no recollection of that ever happening so it's almost like it didn't happen it's almost like it doesn't (laughs) like not that it doesn't matter if it happens but I don't know but then I think people can hear that and then really kind of get into like well then nothing matters doesn't matter whatever anything happens which I think is not not the right way to orient yourself to death Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like for me, it's almost the inverse of that, you know, like the more, the more I consider my own mortality and kind of like the broader mortality of literally everything, it makes me more compassionate. Right. Because I think about like, yeah, you know, when I start thinking about how much I would rather not suffer <laughs> at all, let alone in the moment of my demise, it, it makes me think about like, sure, it would be terrible if I like, you know, got taken out by a grizzly bear out in the woods or something, you know, like that would be pretty much like like maximal suffering to a certain respect but like yeah then like i was thinking about like how many how many like uh elderly people die in old folks homes kind of with like really terrible care here in the united yeah. states mm-hmm. and then like you know like there are people who are like like here in the united states especially there are people like like more getting taking a second mortgage so they can afford their damn insulin Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like like there that is a magnitude of suffering that is is just incomprehensible mm-hmm. And so, like, that's that's part of, like, the systemic critique that I think death positivity offers is, like, mm-hmm. like you know, if we're going to be truly death positive, that means that, like, we have to face the horrible truth of, like, all of the people right now who are dying, like, incomprehensibly terrible ways to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, like, I think it increases compassion because it just, it it brings you so much more into the present moment and makes you realize that, like, yes, now this is what we have. And if this is what we have, like, we should do the very best that we can to make it Mm -hmm. the best possible for everyone and make sure that, yeah, other people are not suffering. And, um, yeah, and that people can have as good of of deaths as possible, you know? Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the awareness that you of how 
yeah, mortal you are and how volatile volatile life is does make you want to be a better person. Um, yeah, legit. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to open this can of worms on the podcast, but I keep thinking about how Mexi knows this, but I had a brain tumor that like really almost killed me within 24 hours and then I got like emergency surgery and then it was fine. But it really like at that moment, like before I got surgery, I, there really was a change. Like I didn't know, I guess if I was going to make it after, Mm -hmm. but I really just felt like, I don't know. I wasn't that scared. I was like, Mm -hmm. there was almost this weird part of (laughs) relief. Like, I mean, first of all, I was suffering so much before the surgery. So I wanted So I was like, just have an end to the suffering, like no matter what is at the end of the road, Mm -hmm. if it's death, if it's a new brain, or if it's like, I, I think that the state of suffering is so terrible that in that moment, death really didn't seem very scary to me. And it was almost like, oh, well, that that will have happened then. And that will have been my life. And I don't need to ever be scared of death again (laughs) or of suffering again. Yeah. And then in the days following that, I, you know, you do feel like, oh, well, my life could have ended and it didn't. And so, but life can end at any point. And so for about like a month, I was a really good person. And then I forgot that. (laughs) (laughs) And then I forgot about my own mortality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And sometimes I'm like, I need to re-channel that moment a little Mm -hmm. bit. Because technically, if I was living in like the Middle Ages, I would, I would be dead six years ago so no it's so true yeah so Mm -hmm. so grappling with our own mortality is immensely important and useful to society um so do you want to get into now how this relates to prepper culture (laughs) (laughs) let's round the corner let's do it let's round the corner yeah Okay, so, yeah, I mean, we're kind of framing this as, like, the fear of death meeting capitalist destruction of our Earth is giving rise to prepper culture. So let's start off with who are the preppers? What are they planning and doing? And kind of (laughs) what is the history of this movement? So I'll throw it to Ash. (laughs) So, um... Prepper, air quotes, preppers is a really broad term, and it kind of encompasses... Like within within the prepper movement, there there is everyone from like billionaires who are currently building like the deadliest game compounds where they'll be able to hunt the poor for sport and and ride segways around water fountains as the world burns around them, <laughs> to like um like white supremacist groups like the three percenters. A lot there's a strong overlap between them and the prepper movement, mm-hmm. and then you have kind of the other spectrum of things where you've got like. You know, people who are just kind of like uh, concerned to certain degrees about different kinds of uh, semi-apocalyptic scenarios, right? You've got people who are like, okay, well, I live in a coastal area, so I should prep for flooding. And then they do various things, respond to that stuff we would consider like a little bit more like reasonable, like they're not building like compounds Mm -hmm. in the desert. They're kind of just getting ready for that. And then you have like, there's like a left strain within prepperism are we gonna go with prepperism um there's a left strain <laughs> sure um sure. with it within like the broader prepper culture too because I mean, you've got like stuff like the socialist rifle association here in the states does a lot of disaster relief so mm-hmm. they'll, they'll go, go to like communities who've been like impacted by flooding and all of these things and try and help out there and like that that does intersect with it so you've got all these things kind of like coming together and from a historic perspective this grows out of the american survivalist movements 
which were kind of like in the 50s and 60s when uh, the Cold War was really popping off. You had like American capitalist culture was like, we're going to sell you atomic proof bunkers. And like it was yeah. very popular mm. that if you had the money, you would buy like a bunker in your backyard and like bury it and stuff like that. <laughs> and then like, you know, because this is an uh, that manifestation of this is like an extremist isolationist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so out of that grows like a lot of American domestic terrorists from the 90s, like Timothy McVeigh. And then a lot of like, you know, separationist kind of dudes, like they were hardcore into survivalism and all of that stuff. Oh, I didn't know. And then uh, the the modern prepper thing kind of happens as a schism within the survivalist scene of a bunch of survivalists who were like, okay, maybe we don't want to associate with like the white supremacist extremist terrorists, but we still (laughs) want to like build bunkers and prepare for the apocalypse. So they kind of split but now even within the prepper community like i said you've got like white supremacist groups running around and it's kind of like like um i was trying to find like i couldn't really find really good statistics over who preppers are like demographically Mm -hmm. and the one the one study i was able to find suggested that upwards of 60 percent of them are white males with socially conservative views older than their 40s and so like that's uh that's a yikes from me i don't know about that one chief demographic So that's kind of that's a, that's that's the spark notes, a very brief overview of what what is a prepper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, it's hard to say, I guess, who they are. That's for sure, because as you said, kind of the prepper mindset or prepperism uh, can span such a wide range of things. Right. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think when we think of preppers, we think of yeah these right wing kind of wacky doomsday preppers or even really rich billionaires who are creating these big bunkers. But then, you know, uh, Autumn Brown and Adrian Marie Brown are also, you know, Autumn Mm -hmm. had that whole property that, uh, I mean, for people who don't know the podcast or whatnot, um, she had this whole property uh, kind of, I think, a forested like rural area in Minnesota and was, yeah, they they were basically planning kind of very consciously how are we going to kind of build community and live here in a yeah. way that's that's going to work in the apocalypse basically and you know one of my close friends is he's you know he's a leftist but also he's kind of not into politics he kind of just thinks that he doesn't have a very positive view of humanity i suppose and just <laughs> thinks that you know people aren't going to wake up and so you know he's thinking he's learning how to grow food he's learning how to do different things and you know have different skills and um i don't think he really thinks he's going to you know survive the end of the world with any of that but i mean even me like i, I doing research for this podcast i was telling ash and marine before I found out that there's kind of a, you know, survivalist people who meet in Toronto and I was looking at their, what their website and, you know, some of it was pretty wackier out there, but some of it was actually just really reasonable skills that I actually do want to learn mm-hmm. and that I do think would be valuable <laughs> like in the next several decades. And I'm like, Oh, am I, am I a prepper now? <laughs> right. Like <laughs> I, I, sh- I share a lot of sympathies with that, with that outlook because I'm like an amateur outdoors dude. Like I love hiking, I love camping and yeah. all that stuff. And so like, you know, when I'm like in a new area or I'm going to go on a hike or something and I'm like, okay, like, what what are what are the indigenous plant life that like would make a good tea or like what should mm-hmm. I be looking out for in this area? I find a lot of the times I wind up on like 
prepper blogs where they're discussing the same stuff. Yeah. You know, hashtag mm-hmm. the last freedom fighter will be like, yeah, I got done building my desert compound last weekend. But, you know, you can find <laughs> a really nice nettle out there that makes a delicious tea. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like, I think there's there's a lot of positive things where, where these people are looking to renegotiate their relationships with the land, find ways to live that are or look look at things that could be sustainable if they were manifested in a way that was less obviously capitalistic. Mm-hmm. Right? So like there's I think like there's good in here, but it's like uh, accreted around that is a lot of like weird isolationist uh misanthropic racist kind of stuff that's very difficult to pry from the whole Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's so true. But yeah, I mean, like a lot of the skills that they're talking about are just, I mean, they're talking about reconnecting with the land and yeah. relearning the, the skills and the knowledge that has been lost from us because we just rely on automation for everything. But, mm-hmm. you know, going forward, I mean, especially if things, I don't know, get dicey politically or whatever, you know, the idea that we're going to have just boundless electricity and all this stuff you know like mm-hmm. we, we will actually have to learn to reconnect with these more more like ancient and uh more connected wisdoms of how to actually have a relationship with the environments around us which right now we have zero you know we have right? zero yeah, relationship mm-hmm. we're just living in our houses we're blocking out the rest of the ecosystem around us we're pumping in electricity and like air conditioning and stuff to keep the air at the right temperature right we we don't engage with our our environment at all. We just we buy things from halfway around the world. We go to these stores to pick them up. Like I, I mean, I personally have little to no relationship with the environment around me, and so I don't mm-hmm. know how mm-hmm. to do anything <laughs> other than just yeah. go to the store mm-hmm. and be fed, you know, with my right. money. <laughs> I, I think about that a lot too. When I like, or like, like as I was researching for this episode, I was thinking about like just how dependent i am on on the system you know like i go to the grocery store and somebody hands me a bag full of food and like yeah i I go back home and the electricity just kind of magically works and the clean water just kind of magically appears and then like even under like the best case scenario right like a lot of this our our consumption of energy is kind of ridiculous and a lot of this is gonna have to be renegotiated i feel like i just like it's Mm -hmm. clearly not sustainable clearly yeah, and even like our trash, like I throw out all this mm. trash and it just gets magically taken away. I don't see any of it. I don't see any of the sewage that I'm producing. Like, I see nothing of it, right? Yeah. And I'm not in control of any of that. I have no participation in any of that. Right. And that renders the myth of idealism, I, of individualism, sorry, even more absurd Ooh, yeah. because we're all taught that we're these, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. You're an individual. You can do everything by yourself. But the truth is, I mean, everything that we do is assisted in a million ways. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, none of the water I drank today I got from the stream or the food that I ate or the electricity that's powering my house. I know that the disability justice movement talks about this a lot. And it's something that I had never thought about really before reading it from these disability justice activists, but how we're all assisted in mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. different ways, but that what, what labels you as disabled or not in the eyes of society is in which ways you're assisted, you know, and, Ooh, and how the society is built to invisibilize all the ways that 
able people use help and rely on things just for their survival, but to hyper visibilize, you know, the, the ways that they can't function in our own society. Right. I mean, we do nothing for like literally almost nothing for ourselves. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. We just go to the store. And the only, the only reason that, yeah, someone else would be considered disabled is that like, well, maybe there's not a ramp so they can't get into the store. Yeah. But I'm still just going to the store and relying on all of these things that I have not had any hand in producing either. Right. That is such a good point. And I think, oh man, I I think, you know, as you were, as you were kind of laying that out, it really kind of like got me thinking about like the distinction between like a left or like a social justice, environmental justice oriented prepper, prepperism versus, versus the other one is, is the focus on individualism or not. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the the people who are just kind of like building bunkers for themselves and like two other people in the middle of the desert won't be able to survive anything. But then you have like, you know, left groups who are trying to build community and renegotiate these relationships and make everything more accessible. And like that is a much more viable (laughs) approach. Right. Mm -hmm. Or even thinking about prepping, like if if I'm thinking, oh, I want to learn how to grow my own food and I want to learn how to whatever, you know, get my own water and make my own energy. That is still kind of an individualist mindset. And I think if we're going to combat that, we have to think about how are we how are we going to build community and make food and share it together right like how are we going to collectively make sure that all of these things are being taken care of and everyone is being taken care of uh, in a way that's sustainable and that is in reciprocal relationship with the environment around us mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's interesting how money and like that that exchange value has made us completely disconnect from each other and so afraid to ask for help. Like I know that in the disability justice movement, they also talk about how they're in, in, in so many ways, they're experts at the apocalypse and at asking for help and at building community because that has been necessary to their survival in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. But how, you know, I think about how, when you have money, it's so much more, it's so much more comfortable to pay for a service than to ask for a favor or then or right. to like or then to connect in in any kind of way and i feel like that comes up in my own life kind of often like rather than asking for a favor like oh is there a service that i can pay that would just do this thing mm-hmm. for yeah. me and how just i re- we've gotten so scared of rejection you know rather than asking my neighbor for, I, I just, I lost my charger yesterday. And rather than asking my neighbor if, if he just had an extra charger, I was thinking like, okay, like, could I run out to a store yeah. and like find one still to this day? Like, you know, willing to spend like 40 bucks rather than just like asking for a favor because no feels really uncomfortable, you know? But anyway, and another friend ended, ended up magically giving me their, their charger at, at this like conference that I went to last night. So that was very lucky, but but yeah, it's just interesting how the myth of individualism is just fed to us by making us spend money for everything that will allow us to sustain this delusion that we can get by on asking people for no help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like not actually building community and like not doing mm-hmm. the work of like, right. I think oh, yeah. part of that is that like, it, it allows us to not be responsible to other people. You know, where because it's like if I'm asking for help, like if I'm building community, then that means that I'm entering into a relationship where 
I'm getting something, but I also have to contribute to this relationship. I also have to contribute to the community. I also have to give back and be responsible um, Mm -hmm. and be accountable to all these people that I'm in relationship with. And, you know, it's, I think we've gotten really lazy and like just really used to just being like, well, if I just buy it, then I don't have to be accountable to anybody. I can just get whatever I want for myself and I don't really have to think about like mm-hmm. giving back or, or reciprocity in any way, you know? Mm-hmm. Legit. Yeah. And it also makes it like all of your actions are disjointed and the, there's not, you lose all sense of like being kind of being a good person and sustaining that from action to action. Because if you can just, you can just start over every time when you just whip out 20 bucks and pay for something. Does that yeah. make sense? Like having to rely on other people and have a reciprocal relationship would lead to you being very careful and empathetic and loving towards those relationships, you know, yeah. but money allows you to not really do that. Yeah. And like having commitments to other people and money allows you to just have no commitments. And we're in a very like non yeah, non-committal exactly. culture, really. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Like nobody wants to commit to girl, don't get anything. <laughs> but I mean, like we, yeah, we've, we've just, we've gotten used to it. And, um, and I mean, yeah, being in community is difficult. You have to, you have to commit, you have to be there, you have to be held accountable, you have to actually participate. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know, I think that our, you know, capitalist realism, um, or late stage capitalism kind of um, plays off our, I guess, our laziness, or just our want to, to not mm-hmm. do that, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think I think a way to connect it back back connect all this back into the prepper thing is that like there, there there's a really strong underlying violence here too to to trying to be so individualistic, right? Because like I've been there too, where I've like lost lost my headphones, and instead of like you know asking someone to borrow their pair, I was like ah, I'm just gonna go I'm gonna go to Target and buy new ones and not talk to anyone <laughs> okay. and like but mm-hmm. like in that in that like monetary capitalist exchange, there's like. There's the violence happening to the people who are not making a living wage. There's there, there's all that like anti-worker violence. And there's the violence and the people who had to make those headphones and mine those minerals. Right. So there's all of that violent participation. Mm-hmm. And then that ties into the prepper culture, because instead of like what I what I see in a lot of this stuff is instead of like, OK, how can we build a community and come together and meet all of our needs? It's like I'm going to I'm going to stockpile 40 tons of grain and then buy like a, a million, you know, bullets so that like I can just shoot people mm. forever as they come to me. And like inside like of the prepper internal language, like prepper slang, like, you know, people, people who aren't preppers are zombies, mm. right? Or they're the quote unquote golden horde, right? Like they're dehumanized because when when uh, shit hits the fan, uh, they're going to be like the slavering horde coming for your stuff. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and so they're they're instead of preparing for a communal world and be like okay well we've got people out here who are undereducated about how to live off the grid or whatever how can we help them it's fuck these people i've got all this the canned soup i'm ever gonna need how can i kill them more efficiently mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. right it's so funny you brought up like when shit hits the fan because <laughs> Yeah, doing research for this, I was looking at... Oh, I know what you're going to say, I think. (laughs) Okay, well, I was looking at just, like, different articles about prepping, and, like, there's these... Uh, there's this website and uh, it was like 10 tips for prepping or whatever. (laughs) And 
No, like I mean, every single thing references this when shit hits the fan moment, and they they shorten it to SHTF. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's just like a commonly well known thing that oh yeah, this is when shit hits the fan. But yeah, number six for the prepping tip was decide who will be part of your plan and who will not. Yep. Wow. And they're like, oh, this may sound strange, but. You know, if you don't watch what you say and do, you could be planning to support four people and end up with 12 mouths to feed in an emergency. Yep. It would be better <laughs> it would be better to know now that you have to plan for 12 and hopefully get them on board to help themselves or keep the other eight in the dark about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. This is a good time to figure out what you're going to do with your pets also. Yep. <laughs> so it's like not it's just like uh, yeah, I don't want to have to take care of 12 people, so I'm going to I'm just going to keep 8 people in the dark and then secure what I can for myself, you know? It's just absolutely gross. And like it's really I think really um you know, masculinist mm, oh, as yeah. well. It's kind of like this this masculine fantasy of just like, oh, I'm going to survive. Because um, there's so many references to like soldiers and special yep. forces and things like that in these tips. Like number seven is make studying and repetition a part of your life. Um, but they even say, you know, if you have enough knowledge, then you could get dropped off in the middle of the woods naked and still be able to able to survive. Sounds like fun, actually. <laughs> Maybe a little <laughs> painful. But drill, drill, drill. A big part of preparation is rehearsal. And special forces units practice for months for operations. So you should, too. Mm. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. And like it, yeah. this, the individualism here is just it's so ludicrous to me because like that fantasy of being able to be yeah. like para, para dropped into the woods naked and then like you can fashion your tools and like uh, kill a bear and make a coat or whatever. Like th- this, this completely abnegates the fact that like, OK, so like let's assume the situation's real and we have someone who knows how to do literally all of these things. Right. With their bare hands, they could like rip apart a tree and make a house. Right. Mm-hmm. They're going to like step on a stick and get an infection and die <laughs> yeah. because they went there alone <laughs> and they didn't have somebody who could like go go out and make a pumice out of the moss that they need in order to cure that or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Like individualism is a death trap. <laughs> it is absolutely a death trap. And also I was reading something or I heard about something someone was doing. kind. Of, I guess it was maybe as a science fiction thing about the future, but it was just also this idea that. If you are trying to just survive by yourself, but everyone else is dying around you, like there's, you know, like this is an apocalypse. There's just like masses of people dying around you. There's like these mass graves or whatever. Um, You know, they're all of those decomposing bodies, like all of these like toxins and all these like pathogens and everything would just be getting into the air. Like you would be living in such a toxic environment if everyone else was just dying and you were just trying to live right like you would also like yeah like you said just like catch diseases living in this environment and probably not be able to save yourself with your tools or your special forces training drills right and to briefly very briefly tie a horror movie into this um vincent price's the last man on earth you know it's it's um it's, a, it's about Vincent Price playing a man who is the lone survivor of a vampire apocalypse. Like, the rest of humanity turns into vampires. <laughs> right? And, like, he he wakes up every morning and goes into town and, and he has a map. And he goes building by building, killing every single vampire in these buildings, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, 
it, it, he, he comes to find out that they're not like mindless blood sucking monsters, but that they're people and that their vampirism is just kind of like a weird medical condition they've been infected with. And they're not actually like Draculas, hmm. you know, with no soul and damn to walk the earth. Right. And the whole the whole movie is about like the horrific monster he becomes by trying to become this lone survivor alpha male dude. Mm. And, and and the fact that like the rest of the world has been building a community and trying to survive this disease. And he's the new vampire monster. He's the boogeyman that all the children are telling scary stories about and that like all of the adults are trying to find a way to catch. Mm. Right. Damn. That's so cool. Yeah. Hashtag horror vanguard podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hashtag. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so right. Yeah, Maxi, what you were saying when you were talking about the phrase like when shit hits the fans. So yeah. the one of the biggest like bunker companies is called Vivos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um that's literally on their homepage. Yep. It's like where will you go when it hits the fan? Oh my god. And it's like the it says in big the backup plan for humanity and everything is in colors that are like gray and black and the letters are really bold and it's so obviously only marketed to men. Yeah. Who, you know, if they're if they have a wife, like they'll they'll want to protect her too and like in that way, I guess it. Yeah. But it really doesn't speak to I don't I really don't think it would speak to any woman mm-hmm. um, or that's like very obviously not in their target audience. And then on their website, you know, they say global pandemic, nuclear war, mega tsunami, solar flare, super <laughs> volcano, super volcano, civil war, uh, civil war, social me- meltdown, killer asteroid, economic collapse. Like that is like all the things they would plan for. And then they feature all of these like shows that they've had like Cribs of the Apocalypse, yep. which is on Vice on HBO, yeah. and Netflix apparently um, made a documentary about them called Vivo's Reveal, and it's really interesting because I watched some of this news coverage and read some of the articles that they reference on their website, and the, I mean, all the articles talk about like the uber rich are building their bunkers, but they're all articles that do acknowledge the absurdity of you know the level of inequality that we've reached and how, but that almost like is a positive feedback loop for them. I feel like it's like, oh, well, if it's this like absurd, absurd, extremely niche things that the uber rich are doing, then that's part of the appeal Mm -hmm. for, you know, the rich people who aren't doing this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's also, I um, read an essay by Douglas Rushkoff uh, called survival of the richest. And I think he's talked about this in other places, but this is in the extinction rebellion book. And he talks about, he talks about how all these rich people like talk about, they never actually refer what's going to happen. They just talk about the event or when the event (laughs) hits the fan. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And, and he also mentions something in, in this essay that really that that I really wanted to tie into what we were saying earlier with like money making us or allowing us to not build reciprocity in our relationships, a huge anxiety that these rich people have when the apocalypse comes is they don't, you know, they wonder how they will make their staff work for them (laughs) and force their staff to work for them when money is no longer worth anything. Oh my God. And this is this is someone who he I think he has like a podcast called Team Human and he's talked about this a few times before. He just like lectures about technology and he's just super I don't know, he's like 
very clued in, I guess, to like the future of technology. And um, he was offered a very high fee to speak at this tech conference. Um, and he ended up being pretty much cornered into this little room where these five very rich like hedge fund managers um, asked him about the apocalypse. And <laughs> that was one of their main concerns is like how to force people to work for them when wow. money is no longer worth anything. And his response was like, I mean, your best bet is to be like kind to them today and to actually try to establish some sort of emotional reciprocity and genuine love between you two. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that's the answer that they wanted, you know, but that's like, wow, that's, that's such a radical idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They were probably hoping for bomb collars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait, like literally, I'm sure they would be like, Hmm, Mr. Rushkoff, tell me more about those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, it's so funny just this idea of like the event. And it's the so event. it's like so nondescript and mm-hmm. I love um like Ash was saying this uh off air another time. But you know, I mean, first of all, how are you going to prepare for an asteroid hitting the earth? Right. Like I would love the asteroid to just hit right where the bunker is and be like, "Yeah, good luck in your bunkers <laughs> for that happening." But right. anyway, uh, you know, it, it's like they're what are they preparing for? They're preparing for these ridiculous outlandish things like an alien invasion or something like that. Whereas probably what will happen is just that, you know, the Earth will just become uninhabitable in the sense that, you know, like Ash was saying, like, you know, what if the breadbasket dried up? And like, we just don't have food anymore and we don't have water anymore or like we're drowning or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just like, you can go into this bunker for a year or two mm-hmm. years or whatever. But once you've run out of your stash yeah. and you try yeah. to emerge from your bunker. There's nothing. Or what if you can just never emerge from your bunker? You die like a slow starvation right. death. I know. Right. I kept thinking about that too. I was like, okay, so if they can't, if they have one or two years worth of food in that bunker, mm-hmm. because they're assuming they won't be able to leave, like, has it not crossed their mind that then they would eventually die a slow death of starvation in this bunker? Mm-hmm. It- yeah. Or like worse than that, whenever I look at these millionaire bunkers things, I just start laughing. I'm like, this looks me horrifying too. to me. This is like, this would be like a perfect... Ash, this would actually be a perfect horror movie. I think we should direct this horror movie that, <laughs> yes. like, that you know, all of these billionaires get into this bunker and they're living their life and they're w- running around on their segways and they're in their water parks and stuff. And then, you know, like the two year mark comes up, they're starting to run out of food, they're starting to get a little bit anxious, like they they realize they can't go outside. Uh, the electricity, like the the power that they use, is starting to wane. They don't, they're not able to actually power themselves anymore. And then they, you know, the lights shut off there's no food and then there's just people and they're like turning to freaking cannibalism mm-hmm. or something or just you know what i mean like just oh, yeah. like killing each other <laughs> like that sounds like a horrible horrible like i just don't understand people are like oh that sounds luxurious <laughs> yeah. and if you if you listen to a lot of like the prepper people and like not even necessarily the ultra rich ones who are living in places like trident lakes or the citadel or like these these absurd retirement homes for doomsday preppers but like even like the the kind of like the more reachable middle class prepper, right? Like all of their ideology, it, it, it hinges on like, okay, like I'm going to live in my bunker or my compound for four months, eight months, a year, two years, whatever. And then society will be restored. 
right? Like, like the whole the whole idea is that they they you quote unquote bug in and like endure some kind of hardship, and then around them society kind of magically fixes itself without their input. Mm, it's like that that, yeah. that grocery store mentality where they're just like, okay, like I'm just gonna like I'm gonna I'm gonna go like. I don't know, like vacation on some nice Spanish island. And when I come back, the civil unrest and meteor apocalypse, super volcano, electro sunstorm is going to be over. Mm-hmm. And then the target's going to be open again. The Walmarts are going to be running and life will be back to normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's just another way to not participate in building community, mm-hmm. right? Because it's just like, exactly. okay, I'll just emerge once everyone else has done all the work to actually build community and actually build like reciprocal relationships that work. And then I'm just going to try and come in and be a part of that after the fact. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And that's such takers mentality. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. I'm going to take, take, I'm going to let them do all the work and then I'm going to go there and I'm going to take. And I've started really thinking about tourism that way as well like Mm. how it's just okay you like take 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 what other cultures have had to have have had to build and often when they've had a little struggle in there like it 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 gives it gives their their food and their dances and their museums even more flavor you know and I'm just gonna like go there and observe Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and take for myself what's been what's like been done and I mean, I could see these like uber rich people, yeah, going on an island or in a bunker for for two years and then reemerging and then just like taking their cameras out and oh, trying yeah. to and like making stories out of like these these right. peculiar new ways these people are surviving. And like I think <laughs> earlier in this conversation, Maureen, you mentioned something that like something along the lines of and like forgive me if I'm like terribly misquoting you here, but it was like like our <laughs> our death negativity causes us to be actively lazy. Like to actively pursue things that are totally contradictory to what an actual solution would look like. And what is that if not building a compound and trying to like ride out the entire earth being engulfed in flame because an asteroid the size of the moon just hit it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ash, you talked about these people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to drink, you know, only water. I'm going to build this standing desk. I'm going to, you know, I'm going (laughs) to... Uh, avoid my own mortality whatever i mean this is the real ultimate way people are just deluding themselves into thinking that they can avoid their own mortality right Mm -hmm. it's just it's just absolutely absurd and i mean beyond that well first i just wanted to mention I, i i was watching a youtube video about like you know these luxury bunkers or whatever and one of the most hilarious things to me i mean aside from all the water parks and the ridiculous lavishness of it was that in each room they had this tv screen that was supposed to double as a window but obviously it can't be a window because you're underground so the tv screen would pipe in a live feed from a camera above ground (laughs) to show you what's going going on outside so that it (gasps) So that it looks like you're actually looking out a window down there so that you don't like lose your shit or whatever. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like you have what, one year, two years worth of energy and you're spending that on like, you know, like LCD screens to pump in these fake images to be your window. Like that's what you're fucking doing with the energy that you have left. I saw saw another one that every, every like little bunker house in the little bunker living room underground had like... Uh, like like a massive like 72 inch uh flat screen tv and then the guy who was like like making these condos was like oh yeah we have this tv and it's going to be hooked up to like satellite and you're going to have all the channels and we've got like thousands of movies stored that you can watch 
And I'm like, what? What kind of like lunacy is this? Like on top of the whole energy thing, like like one, like the TV. I don't think the TV is going to survive the super volcano, buddy. Like, and then like you've got thousands of movies to watch. Like, is that really how you're going to spend the last two years of the apocalypse? Is just like rewatching the Avengers? Well, what else are you going to do underground for a year yeah. doing nothing? You're, you don't have any work to do. You're just sitting there. What the hell else are you going to do? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so funny. But yeah, but I, I mean, tying this also to uh, just the death positivity and the fact that nobody has any death positivity. It's that, you know, these these billionaires are they're not only looking at like bunkers and things like that. They're also looking at all these ridiculous things like young blood transfusions <laughs> And different, like, really weird things that they're doing to try and extend their own lives as much as possible. And I think that just shows, I mean, obviously a total lack of death positivity and just a total lack of connection with oneself and, and whatnot. But, I mean, playing off of people's fears of death is big business right mm-hmm. like for a lot of these companies and the way that they're marketing things and and even for a lot of these smaller like i found a lot of smaller companies that are like prepper companies and they're offering services to just regular you know like working class people and it's like if you want a consultation with us it's 200 dollars per hour yep. and we'll give you a consultation for how you can work on your survivor skills and like survive the end of the world and all of this stuff. Like it's big business, but then, you know, for like boomers and people who have a bit more money or even like these rich people, you know, there's, there's people and there's companies that are hosting all these symposiums and like targeting people who are in that generation and being like, listen, your time is running out. Like they Mm -hmm. just flatly say like, your time is running out. Like you have to take this leap, take this initiative and give us $285,000 and we're going to infuse you with some young blood yep. and you're going to extend your life and it's it's all amazing and but it's also super colonial also oh, because yeah. it's like well where where are we getting this young blood and then like if you look into it there's all these like red markets mm-hmm. in India and places where um yeah like that is can, so fucked up yeah where you can just like get young blood and it's like how do they get this blood first of all or and like you know it's just disgusting it's super colonial as well and building like a market around this i just think i mean this is so vampiric i mean talk about capitalism (laughs) being vampiric right like this is literally vampiric right wow yeah literally literally right i also wanted to make this point um that i thought was really interesting in the essay that i was telling Uh, that I was telling you about earlier by David Rushkoff um, about how he says something really interesting about how the more committed we are to this worldview of like technology saving us, you know, or like either blood transfusions, either downloading (laughs) your consciousness, either building a bunker or like creating these hyper-performant technologies that can save us. The more we're committed to that being the option of survival the more than we internalize the view that the solution is the technology and the problem is the humans Mm -hmm. and he says i just want to read a couple of paragraphs that i think are are interesting so he says um the more committed we are to this worldview the more we come to see human beings as the problem and technology as the solution the very essence of what it means to be human is treated less as a feature than as a bug 
No matter their embedded biases, technologies are declared neutral, and any bad behavior they induce in us are just a reflection of our own corrupted core. It's as if some innate human savagery is to blame for our troubles, just as the inefficiency of a local taxi market can be solved with an app that bankrupts human drivers. The vexing inconsistencies of the human psyche can be corrected with a digital or genetic upgrade. Ultimately, according to the techno-solutionist orthodoxy, the human future climaxes by uploading our consciousnesses to a computer, or perhaps better, accepting that technology itself is our evolutionary successor. Like members of agnostic culture, we long to enter the next transcendent phase of our development, shedding our bodies and leaving them behind along with our sins and troubles. Mm-hmm. And then he says, the mental gymnastics required for such a profound role reversal between human and machines all depend on the underlying assumptions that humans suck let's either change them or get away from them forever mm-hmm. yeah and i think that is super true and it's also very interesting that there's this paradox and maybe it's the hubris and the egocentrism of these very wealthy individuals but having like an underlying a fundamental assumption yeah an underlying assumption that humans are the problems that they suck that there's too many of them but then also thinking of yourself so highly that you must think there's a preserve like a feature worth preserving in humans because you're literally trying to download your own consciousness into a robot Mm -hmm. so yeah why (laughs) like why (laughs) also like how fucking important do you think you have to be that you're like, oh, I need to download my brilliant mind into a robot or I need to survive mm-hmm. in a bunker after everyone's gone because my life doesn't need anyone – like is in and of itself so worth preserving mm-hmm. because and, of my brilliance and wealth. Mm-hmm. Totally. And like thinking about, you know, like death positivity and whatnot, it's like if you're uploading your consciousness to this robot – I mean, I've heard some people saying that it's like, it wouldn't really be possible to upload your emotions and stuff into the robot because you don't really mm, have that's like an interesting feeling organs or anything. So you'd just be uploading your thinking analytical brain to this robot and then what, like using energy to keep this robot on at all times and then just it, it's like at that point you have died yeah and it's just you know <laughs> yeah. at that point you are dead and now your your brain is just locked in this computer and that's really the lengths that people will go other than just being like you know what i've lived a life i'm just an animal and now i'm dead that yeah. the, the end like who cares <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and, and the whole like robot thing just like ugh. It, fr- it frustrates me so deeply because like any any kind of science that, that would make such a thing even remotely possible is so distant from where we are today. And there, there is like we don't even have a foot in the door for some kind of like robot brain. You know, like we can barely manage heart surgeries and we're thinking about like building mm-hmm. robot download brains like mm-hmm. it's, it's just kind of I think that really highlights the. Just the sheer ludicrous reality of this whole like this 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 maximum death negativity that you see in the ultra rich who are doing everything to escape what's what's like 20, 30, 40 years down the road for them, assuming that like they don't just trip badly one day. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like, but oh. it, and it's not even, it's not even just like the super rich either. It's like, you know, I've like dated people who have been like tech bros who are like just really into these ideas and really into this, you know, mm-hmm. consciousness stuff. Right. And yeah, right. <laughs> I just, it's, it's like, it's the ultimate, I think, you know, as Rinpoche says, it, it's the ultimate avoidance of ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. It, and it's also, it's just so foolhardy because I mean, even thinking about these rich people, but also thinking about just average people who are just really invested in this tech bro stuff. It's like, are we really going to spend the next 10 years, which are so critical for this climate and, you know, people are suffering all around the world under uh, capitalism and exploitation and neocolonialism, etc. And we're really going to spend all of our money and our resources and our time focusing on robot brains Instead of just reconnecting with our environments and with each other and building, you know what I mean? Like, we're going to do anything that we can mm-hmm. except reconnecting with ourselves, with our right. fellow humans around us, and with our environments. It, like, some of these these bunkers, it's like $3 million, $4, $4 mm-hmm. million dollars to purchase your tiny little space in this bunker. Like, what if we put all of that money towards, I don't know, food justice or, right. I don't know, mm-hmm. renewable energy, like anything other than that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, that that ties into what I was going to say. It's like, you know, for, for the people who are like doing this hyper sci-fi stuff, like freezing their heads in jars and like hoping that some scientist invents robot brains or something like that, that, that is like Jetsonian sci-fi visions of, of a world that could be. And these people are imagining becoming some horrifying shell robot program monstrosity that's hurtling through space or some nonsense (laughs) and not like envisioning an equally uh, scientifically advanced magical even like environmental justice plan where we somehow restore the earth using some hitherto unenvisioned science like Right. WTF, man. <laughs> like, I'm just this. Oh, <laughs> tech bros frustrate Seriously. me. Seriously. Okay, so you know we know what we should not be doing, or we know that what most people are doing is awful and folly. Uh, but what should we be doing? Folly. So, <laughs> folly. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, can we think about communal prepping? And can we think about, you know, a, a way to prep for climate chaos together that would be more productive? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing is realizing, you know, the, the reason, I mean, one of the main reasons for me that the preppers movement just completely, completely misses the mark is that we didn't get to this apocalyptic, disastrous situation where so you know, that it is so blasphemously unequal and and perpetuating so much harm. We didn't get here by mistake or we didn't get here randomly. This is obviously, this is like a logical conclusion to so many toxic ideologies that we've been fed and have been mm-hmm. like perpetuating through capitalism and patriarchy and racism, etc. And and yeah, I think the preppers movement kind of absolves itself from that responsibility as if they're just reacting to this thing that was thrown that was thrown onto them. But rather like we need to and and we were speaking about this last week with Zavi on the podcast as well, but climate crisis 
and and the apocalypse gives us a opportunity to explore these ideologies that have poisoned our minds in a in a much in a very deep way mm-hmm. um and that and understanding that you know we may not escape this breakdown but we can escape the toxicity of the mindsets that have brought us here and we can start healing mm-hmm. and recovering our humanity and and really like collectively ex- collectively yeah doing some healing and some deep exploration <laughs> around these ideologies mm-hmm. and that's just so obviously what we need to be doing yeah and you know that can manifest in a million different ways obviously but mm-hmm. yeah i really really love that as mm-hmm. well i've I've lately been, uh, I guess not like reorienting my expectations, but I guess, um, stopping, stopping myself from thinking that, you know, the whole world is on my shoulders and I have to do everything. And if I'm not coming up with the answers and if I'm not doing enough, 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 then, you know, everything's going to crumble and just kind of realize that, uh, a lot of the work that we have to do is internal. (laughs) And, you know, I am actually doing, you know, at capacity for what I can contribute right now, you know, and, and just kind of being, being happy about that, being uh, accepting that, you know, this is the situation and this is how I'm able to contribute to building this better world and, and just kind of accepting that. And, and yeah, it's felt really, I guess, good and Mm -hmm. (laughs) like relieving, you know, but yeah, I also think that uh, we need to, and I'm going to talk about this in an upcoming video, but we need to really, especially on the left, pay a lot more attention to building relationships with indigenous nations mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. in, in which we inhabit because they actually have the knowledge of how to live in reciprocity with the environments that yeah. we're living in. And we don't have that knowledge. We don't. And we need to have the humility to, to really understand that we're not going to have like a settler revolution on indigenous land. Like we actually need to learn and, and, just uh, lend our support to indigenous sovereignty movements and and uh, and decolonization movements. I think that's a really really important thing that we need to do. And I think mm-hmm. through that we can learn better how to live in community and with each other and with the earth in a way that's a lot more reciprocal. Mm-hmm. The book Maxi Braiding Sweetgrass that yes. you have been talking about and recommended <laughs> yes. to me. I'm about halfway through, but it's just really. I find it so inspiring oh, and yeah. healing to read. Yes. And Ash, have you read this as well? Um, I've I've only read the first section of it. I haven't uh, gotten a physical copy yet, but, but I am like, I'm what I've read has just been like so good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the other day I was just, well, so I'm listening to it on audiobook and I actually love the audiobook version because it's her reading reading it. So I think that's really special when you get like the author reading their own book, but she talks about how in, um, her ling, uh, her native tongue, what is, what is the language called? Uh, Potawatomi. Yeah. In Potawatomi, 70% of the words in the language are verbs mm-hmm. and only 30% or less are nouns and how in, and in English over 70% of her words are nouns because like we're so obsessed with things Mm -hmm. and how in Potawatomi like there's so many things like you know the earth or uh, like the ocean or the trees etc that are verbs because they're like always you know they're always changing 
Yeah, exactly. They're animated. That's the word that she uses. And that just really made me think about like how deeply poisoned we are with this ideology of capitalism and of materialism Mm -hmm. that just even, yeah, we need to turn to indigenous communities and and communities that have been living with the land to understand how to even, like, it it is our, like, very gram, it's like seeped into our DNA, you know, how we've just like forgotten the intelligence of life and of what we're surrounded with. And we desperately just need other, we, how, how can we figure, how can we expect to figure this out without turning to like these communities that have made it such a central part of their culture to be in connection with the land and with the earth? Absolutely. Totally. I'm so thrilled that both of you are reading this book. I (laughs) just, once again, everyone, please read Braiding Sweetgrass. Robin Wall Kimmerer should be leading the revolution. I am not even joking. Um, But yeah, I mean, indigenous people that I work with say that, you know, English is the language of commerce. And it is. Like, we even talk about the environment as resources. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That that would never happen in, you know, an indigenous. Well, I don't know all indigenous languages, but certainly ones that I've been exposed to where it is the language of animacy and everything is considered a living thing with a soul. And, it, you know, we wouldn't talk about it in the, the same way at all if that's how our language was structured. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, like the only animate thing or one of the only animate things in the English language in terms of nouns is like the market, you know, how it's like (laughs) healthy or how it's, you know, how it's like growing or how it's like, you know, sick right now or how to, (laughs) yeah, or how it has a pulse and all these things like it's the market is not I feel like the market is considered more animate than like the ocean in the English language. Oh, yeah. It's so true. It's fucked. Um, unfortunately, I really need to get going um, because yeah. I have to because I have an appointment. <laughs> but I love this conversation so much, and I'll I'll leave you to to it. And thank you so much for everything that was shared here. And thanks to all the listeners for listening. Yeah, good talking with you. Thank you. You're, you're invited in my bunker if the apocalypse. Awesome! Happens. I look forward to it. All right, bye guys. Bye. See you later. Yeah. So I mean, those are definitely things that. I think about a lot. I'm yeah. Again, I'm super thrilled that you're reading Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm just gonna get all of my book recommendations from you from now on. This is so good. <laughs> I'm just gonna get them all from Robin Wall Kimmerer. Right, but yeah. <laughs> but um. But yeah. I mean, do you have any other thoughts about what we can do? Like how we can kind of reclaim prepperism, I suppose, for the left because we clearly do have to relearn some some right. skills that we do not have and we clearly do need to work on like preparing for preparing for the fact that as the the you know climate crisis worsens, capital is just not going to be able to meet the needs of the people oh, yeah. and they're probably not going to be able to meet our needs. Uh so yeah, what are your thoughts? Like my the, the one thing that I kind of have been coming back to a lot lately and kind of like not 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 even just within the purview of this kind of like awesomely weird conversation about preppers and death positivity, but like on a more broad level, it's like we we don't really know what's going to happen, what, what's around the corner. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, like I hear everything from like, you know, we're not going to be too impacted because we live in the imperial core, but like we're going to participate in monstrosities, everything from like that all the way to like 
eco-fascist, the bread bowl has been destroyed. We're in like the Mad Max perma-desert nightmare world. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it's it's really hard to, to tell what's around the corner. But I think like for me, instead of like giving us no direction, that gives me a lot of direction, right? Because instead of like hoarding grain and like building a poisoned death trap bunker for people or something, it's to, it's like build start building community on, on your local level right mm-hmm. like and it, and it kind of like it doesn't even really matter how you're doing it right like maybe maybe you're like unionizing your workplace maybe you're starting a food not bombs or maybe it's just like a socialist reading group or something but like just kind of like start building those networks start building communities start getting to like actually make a community where you live mm-hmm. of people that care about each other and know each other and like you know, if you live in an apartment complex, try and do some tenants rights stuff and organize that. And like mm-hmm. and like a lot of this, you know, even if like a lot of this is sounding like very kind of like I don't want to necessarily say high minded, but like complicated and hard and emotional labor and stuff. And like even if like that's not your jams, just like, you know, like even with like your friend group or like the people you work with, like try and build some real connections there. Because mm-hmm. I think like that's going to be the thing that carries us through. That like no matter no matter what's around the corner, right? Like it's it's going to be the fact that we know the people who live around us. We can rely on these people, and we've kind of built something together that's going to give us mm-hmm. a direction out of here, rather than like you know like like all of these skills are good. Like we should all probably know a little bit about farming and like the territory upon which we live, mm-hmm. but like breaking that off from an individual perspective and like reintegrating with the the literal people around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's so true because yeah, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but yeah, that part of my deep frustration with the way that things are now is that people use this idea of like, Oh, well we don't really know what's going to happen to just justify keep, keeping on going with the status quo yeah, doing nothing and being like, well, let's just see how long we can maintain the status quo until it's really too late. And then we'll do something, you know what I mean? And it's just like, why don't we actually just build a better world right now? Right. Cause a lot of all this prepper stuff and even some of the individualist prepper stuff on, on the left, it's not really trying to actually solve the problem. Like we're not actually building community and trying to, live in reciprocity with the earth because we want to actually lessen our impact on the earth or lessen, you know, mitigate uh, climate change in any way. Uh, It's because, well, we, we have no other option and this is just what we're doing to survive this inevitable thing. But I think that's kind of like the same mindset as the people who are like, well, let's maintain the status quo as, as long as possible until it becomes clear that we really, really can't anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, well, why don't we actually just start trying to, you know, build Build parallel institutions, mm-hmm. even though that's like that's really difficult. But you know, as you said, just start small, start with community, but oh, yeah. start trying to build the capacity to m- meet people's needs outside of the capitalist framework, so oh, that yeah, when absolutely. this all falls down, we're there, like we're there, right. and we we know each other, and we know the earth, and we know what to do, and we're doing it in a way that aligns with our values, like you know, restorative justice and and all the rest, uh, and, you know, communal living, et cetera, right? Like, no non-hierarchical, et cetera, you know, 
let's do that now. We don't, there's no reason to wait. And it's kind of the same, like there's no reason to wait for like this capital R revolution to happen for us to start doing this, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like, Capital R revolutions throughout history from like, you know, like the the American Revolutionary War before that and onward, like these are catastrophic moments of intense violence that historically like never quite, you know, like they they succeed, but always with massive caveats, you know, Mm -hmm. and like waiting, waiting for that moment and being like, aha, that is the moment where like something will happen for some reason. Like that that's kind of like. I don't know. That's, that strikes me as just being like foolhardy, right? That's not that's not quite how the mechanics yeah. of this break down. And like as as the prepper forums taught me, right? Like when's the best time to prepare for a disaster? Before the disaster, when things are easier, right? Right? Like there's Way there's some easier. hashtag prepper mindset for everyone. Yeah, hashtag we're all preppers now. <laughs> <laughs> but really. I- And I mean, even if we're just like what it is that we're prepping for is like the better society, like we still we actually have to participate like this isn't something we can buy. This isn't even just a war that we can win that we can yeah have this capital R revolution. And then after that, we're just going to live free and happy forevermore. Like we are going to have to put the systems in place that make us happy and free forevermore. And I think that a lot of this kind of waiting for the the capital R revolution is kind of the same mindset as like, yeah, I'm just going to buy these Apple iPhones instead of talking to anybody because, you know, if I can just wait till that, then, you know, then the society I'm in will figure it out. Once, once capital is gone, then like things will just be figured out and then I'll just reap the rewards of that instead of realizing that like there's no rewards to be reaped if we're not actively participating if we're not actively committed to each other and um, participating means offering what you can it means you know like we have to have reciprocal relationships with each other (laughs) as well as the earth right so right and like i I, yeah yeah, like i totally agree like i think that like that waiting for like the capital r revolution attitude is just like that is not a systemic understanding of the problem right like Mm-hmm. If we like, like I really hate like the guillotine memes and the whole like, you know, there are, there are five people ruining the earth and they're all these CEOs. Like that's not that's not systemic, right? right? That's individualistic. Right. If we launch Elon it Musk is. into the sun, right? The board is just going to choose a new Elon Musk, and the the wheels are going to keep on turning. Like right, yeah, and you know, it's like uh, David Koch died, but oh yeah, like, nothing changed. His foundation, his foundation lives on, and. Yeah, nothing's going to really change. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess just build community, build, try and build parallel institutions and try and help each other in whatever way possible. But right. Cause it, and it might seem, and maybe learn some survivor skills, you know? Oh, yeah. And it, and it might seem like <laughs> weird and small to suggest that, like, like unionizing the grocery store in the town you live in is, is a way to prepare for climate apocalypse. But like, mm-hmm. if, if you if your if your place of employment did that and everyone else did the same, all of a sudden we have a worker owned economy. And and that that right. is like intuitively primed to be more in tune with nature, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like this is just an anecdote. I, I taught my first class of the year last night, and I in the first lecture I always show uh the story of stuff, which is 
a, a YouTube video. I'll mm-hmm. link it in the description box. It's it's like inherently anti-capitalist, but it doesn't really name it. So it's really good to show to people who, you know, it's not like I'm just coming out there with like, <laughs> Karl Marx says this, like on the very first day, right? right? But I showed this video and then someone in my class was just like, like they brought up Marx and capital and hell saying yeah. that, you know, well, yeah, hell yeah. I was so excited. And they were just like, well, you know, the solutions that they pose, like we're in this capitalist system and like, is that going to be enough kind of thing? And the whole class got into this really productive conversation about it. It was awesome. And I just real, it just made me realize that the ecological crisis, like average people that I would typically be a a little bit hesitant to just, you know, bring up Marx in like a public space because I want people to take me seriously. I want to be able to influence their thinking without them just shutting their their minds and their ears off. But, you know, average people are ready for this revolution. Like right. they see the writing on the wall. They see that what we're doing is not sustainable. And we don't actually have to convince everyone that, you know, we're necessarily like we have the answers for what this utopia is going to look like. All we have to do is convince everyone that like there will be an end to this this is not going to last forever. And so we better start making a plan. Right. And I think that at, at least the majority of people are ready to accept that. And so I, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. It was just very encouraging to me thinking that, you know, wow, there's so many more people because there's people in the class who said they work in finance and all this stuff and they were really participating in this. And I was like, wow, people get it. Mm-hmm. Um, they do. And they're ready for for change but like we just need to reach them we need to build community yeah. with them you know what i mean yeah exactly yeah i think yeah. Every, everybody everybody everywhere is kind of itching for change you know like the system is not mm-hmm. satisfactory for anybody on any level unless you're bill gates mm-hmm. you know like unless you you have so much money that you can it's functionally impossible for you to spend it all mm-hmm. you know like like there's there's a brilliant um like text-based video game called you are jeff bezos <laughs> and the, the the premise is you wake up one morning and you're in jeff bezos's body right like so something something magical happens and you wake up as jeff bezos and like the the challenge of the game is like you have to you have to take a day to try and spend all of his money oh god and like when i first started playing it i was like oh, it's gonna be easy man i'll just like keep funding all the good stuff until the money go- and it's like it's surprisingly difficult to spend all of jeff bezos's <laughs> cash yeah i mean it's so ridiculous but yeah like like i think um yeah p- people people want change people want a better world a better world is possible yeah. we just need to start you know getting to know each other <laughs> yeah getting to know each other that's that's the hard work of revolution that nobody talks about right? like we need to sure defend ourselves whatever we need to you know be prepared for that but the hardest part of revolution is like literally forming these really deep reciprocal bonds with other humans <laughs> and being ac- and being accountable to them yeah there's, there's nothing to defend if you don't have community yeah yeah Oh, yeah, reminds me of uh, Seriously Wrong, The Power of Friendship. Everyone should right. listen to that. Yep. It's such a great podcast. I, I, was thinking, I was thinking like, okay, Running and Hiding, that episode too. Oh, yeah, yep. really great. We, chan- we channeled some really strong Seriously Wrong vibes here at the end of the episode. We did. We did. Shout, shout, out, to, shout, shout out to the Wrong Boys and their amazing show. Shout out. Shout out. 
Okay, well, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. That was a really awesome conversation. And thank you for joining us on the show and talking about this. I, it was just awesome. Yeah, this was so much. I love uh, Vegan Vanguard and the work that you and Marine do. And I am always happy to, to come on the show and talk about whatever weird stuff comes up. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we both absolutely love the Horror Vanguard. And so this is another plug for the show. For all of our listeners, check that out. We will link it below. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Cheers.